So here we are, uh, lesson 11, the book of Job. Now I'm sure you're wondering, what? Ruth, Samuel, and then Job? So take a look at the handout titled, The Old Testament and Redemptive Historical Order. Did I give that to you guys Monday night? I thought I did. Um, I've... I should have. Oh, I didn't give it out? I am terribly sorry. I thought I did. Uh, we'll make sure you get that before you leave here today. Um, so on that, you can see a thematic grouping of the books in the Old Testament moving from creation of God's people in the Pentateuch to the establishment of God's people in the land and the crowning of God's king, as we saw with Ruth and First and Second Samuel. Uh, the next book in your Bible, 1 Kings, begins the process of reversing all of that with the disobedience of God's kings, which is a story told in Kings and commentated on by the prophets that we're going to be talking about. And then the exile, uh, the disestablishment. Yes, that. Okay. All right. Oh. <laughs> There we go. Oh, John. I'm going to print it off. How many need copies? After hearing that, now I've got Def Leppard in my head when you said that. <laughs> it worked. It worked. <laughs> so, uh... What was it? Oh, yes. The exile, uh, the disestablishment of God's people, and finally, again, the recreation of God's people. And in the middle, as this kingship is established, uh, we have the wisdom and praise of God's king, which is often uh, referred to as the wisdom literature. Uh, we talked about the other night as the writings. That just sounds, actually sounds kind of cool when you, when you name it like that. Wisdom literature sounds kind of generic, but when you say, as it is said in the writings, it has an air, air of mystery and intrigue, the writings. Uh, this is in the middle, and it's uh, related a lot to God as king. Uh, when you look at the Psalms, uh, writing to God as king, referring to him, establishing him as king. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, um, credited to... to uh, Solomon, David's son. So a lot of ways these books were wisdom for ruling well uh, for God's, as God's king, but even more they were intended uh, for God's people. So we'll take a break from the history of the kings and look at God's wisdom for kings. So here's our introduction to Job. Hi, this is Job. Hi, Job. Uh, now, uh, Job, you know, I just got finished saying, hey, all this was written about how the, to be a king, a wise king. Well, Job was, wasn't written by a king or to a king. Um, so why now? Basically, it's wisdom literature. So we're going to squeeze it in with the rest of the wisdom literature. Um, kind of like James in the New Testament, uh, it's pretty timeless in its wisdom uh, and pretty universal in its wisdom. Uh, it seems to be set about in the time of Abraham or perhaps before, 
uh, based on how Job lives, based on how he measured wealth. Um, but the use of the covenant term Yahweh for God um, by the narrator of Job suggests that the story was compiled sometime after the Exodus um, when God introduced that term Yahweh. So probably happened long before, but was written long after. So it's interesting that when the characters themselves speak, they almost always use the generic term God. But when the narrator speaks, he uses Yahweh, uh, which again, you'll see that in all caps when it says the Lord. So whoever compiled this knew more about God than Job did. Job didn't know the, the covenantal name Yahweh, but whoever wrote the book of Job did know the covenantal name Yahweh. So what's Job about? Fundamentally, it's about Job. Ah. So in him asking some of life's most difficult questions, why do the righteous suffer uh, the same way that the unrighteous do? You know, a lot of wicked people seem to go unpunished or maybe even it seems like they flourish and prosper and many upright people suffer. How do we explain that? The whole why do good things happen to bad I mean why do good things why do bad things happen to good people? Wow. Uh, and perhaps more importantly, how should we handle and conduct ourselves when we do suffer? Not just why does it happen, but how should we respond? And so there are two things that are assumed in this book that God is sovereign that he ordains everything that comes to pass in the book of Job and that he is good, that he is, uh, he loves what is right and he hates what is evil. So these two things are assumed throughout the book of Job. He is sovereign. He is good. Uh, kind of like what we're going we saw in the book of Ruth and what we're going to see in the book of Habakkuk or Habakkuk, however you want to say it. Um, we stand in the apparent gap where, uh, our circumstances seem to conflict with either God's goodness or God's sovereignty. It seems like one of those can't be true. He's either good and can't do anything, or he can do something, but he won't, therefore he's not good. Uh, it seems to conflict, conflict with the reality there. Uh, so again, either he isn't in control, or he's not good. Uh, and notice that this isn't about explaining why these things happen. Uh, it's useful in part because it, it does explain some of why this happens to Job. But notice that Job never finds out. It's only as the narrator, uh, I don't know why everything goes back to a movie, but A Muppet's Christmas Carol. Um <laughs> The classic work. <laughs> the classic work. Uh, Gonzo is Charles Dickens, the narrator. <laughs> and Rizzo the rat is like, how do you know what's going on in there? And Rizzo says, well, I'm the narrator. I'm omnipotent. Uh, and so, yeah. Uh, so while Job never finds out, the narrator of this, of Job shows us why all this is happening to Job. So this isn't about us finding out why bad things happen because Job never found it out. Instead, it's about how we can trust a good and sovereign God despite the nature of our circumstances. It's a book about trust, not about explanation. 
And that is so important for us as we go through the book of Job. It's a book about trusting God, not understanding God. Uh, if, if it's about understanding God, then we will forever be doomed to confusion and a lack of trust and assurance. But when we put it in its proper perspective about trusting God, then we have great assurance, we have great rest, great trust. Uh, so uh, it's about amassing evidence. We can take the honest leap of faith to trust God in difficult circumstances, uh, even if we don't understand why those things are happening. So here's a, uh, a theme statement for the book of Job. God is completely sovereign over all the affairs of his universe for his own glory. But often his motives, reasons, and goals behind what he does are not revealed to us. Yet we find in his character and in our Redeemer reason to trust in his care. Notice our trust is about who he is, not about what he does. It's about who he is. Um, so this isn't a systematic theology um, in ancient literature. This is the message of Job. It takes on huge issues, and it doesn't give us a simplistic, cliche answer. Uh, God works in mysterious ways. It's true, but it doesn't give us that kind of a simplistic, cliche of an answer. Um, there's not a one-to-one -one correspondence between evil and suffering here or between righteousness and reward uh, this side of heaven. That's the way we often think of things in those kind of terms. But here in Job, we, we're not necessarily seeing that. We're seeing that life is messy, life is complicated. And Job deals with it in a way that's very genuine and very realistic in that. Um, they need to be dealt with, these kinds of issues need to be dealt with seriously, with humility, reverently. Um, but these issue, issues, issues are things that we do need to deal with. Uh, and keep in mind, there is real suffering going on here. This isn't just a story. This is a man who lost everything, including his children, uh, in a blink of an eye. And sometimes when things like that take place, when there's real suffering around us, we have these wrongheaded attempts to resolve the issues. Uh, but that's not always the way it's going to work. Especially, I mean, imagine what Job was going through. Uh, but finally, it's about the voice of God who makes all things clear. Not the why, but the trust. Uh, so we'll break this down into three big pieces that walk through how we as believers struggle with difficult circumstances. We often suffer. We sometimes understand. We can always trust. Often, sometimes, always. Suffer, understand, trust. Uh, often suffer, sometimes understand, but we can always trust. So in uh, chapter one, we're introduced to Job in the first five verses here. Uh, we see he is a righteous man. Verse one, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Job chapter one. Let me read. There is a man in the land of Uz, whose name, or Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And 
One, wouldn't it be awesome if that's the way God described you? You're blameless and upright. You fear God. You turn away from evil. Uh, but not only was... Uh, yes, he does. You're right. Uh, what was that? Oh, yeah, that's where it was. You distracted me. Um, not only was Job righteous, he was also wealthy. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Uh, I mean, he, he was like the Elon Musk of the day. Yes. <laughs> um, so what's most well-known about Job, though, uh, the thing for which he is legendary is what he loses, what he goes through. And we see that take place in uh, a matter of eight verses. In verses. Beginning in verse 13, we read this. Now there is a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. I mean, this is all told him, at all of this at one time. And then on top of all this, fast forward to chapter 2, verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. So on top of all this, he has health issues. All of this in a moment. Uh, I can't imagine anybody who has probably suffered this much all at once. Um, but in the end, he did not suffer comprehensively more than we all will suffer. Uh, Sir Walter Scott said this, Come he slow or come he fast, it is but death that comes at last. What a jolly old man he was. Um, so suffering uh, is universal. It may not be exactly like how Job went through it, But sometimes, as Christians, um, admitting doubt, fear, failing, anger, conflict, um, we avoid admitting that these things, the suffering these things can bring. Uh, we like, thankfully, not necessarily here, but the church as a whole sometimes falls prey to wanting church to be more like motivational pep rallies. Um, rather than addressing the truth of messy life. Um, but if we want to have a realistic understanding about what it means to be a follower, follower of Christ, if we want to live lives in the real world that is messy, we need to recognize that although we may be able to psych ourselves up for a little while, 
in the words of Petra, rose-colored stained glass windows, uh, that version of Christianity, we won't be able to convince many people around us of the reality of our faith. Uh, we won't be dealing honestly with ourselves either. Uh, so in looking at the book of Job, we're going to be able to see that trouble and strife belong not only to Job, but to, to us as well. And we do no one, including ourselves, any good if we deny this reality. Uh, Job is a good example of someone who suffers and deals honestly with his sufferings. Uh, so we often suffer and we sometimes understand. And this is really what most of the book is about. Uh, and so let's take a brief overview of the book of Job. The first chapters, the first two chapters, set out the basic story. It, it gives us the, the setting and, and the plot of Job. Uh, they tell us who Job is and the trials that he encounters. Uh, then at the end of chapter 2, three of Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, uh, come to comfort him and they sit with him silently for a week. You know, I think they, they started off really well. That was exactly what need, they needed to do. They just sat... <laughs> they sat silently with him for a week. They were, they were just there. Um, very wise of them. What was Jonah saying? Oh, sorry, oh. your son went by the window. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I thought Jonas did something. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> uh, but, and then in chapter three, someone speaks to Job. Big mistake. That's where they started to go wrong. Uh, so he pours out uh, his complaint. Then chapters 4 through 41, um, all but the last chapter, it, it's, it's a series of dialogues. Uh, chapters 4 through 31 contain uh, cycles of dialogue between Job and his three friends. In the first two cycles, Eliphaz speaks and Job responds. Then Bildad and Job, then Zophar and Job. And each of the speakers keep making the same points. Job's friends say, suffering has happened because Job has sinned. Job, no, I haven't. I'm innocent. Um, the same happens in the third cycle, except the last guy, Zophar, doesn't talk anymore because the debate's over. Instead, Job makes his final protest and almost demands that God show up so that he can talk to God himself about his suffering. Uh, but instead of God at this point, we hear from a young man named Elihu, who appears in chapter 30, 32 and speaks all the way up to 37. That's how we know he was young. Where the other guys would talk and let Job take a turn, this guy just keeps on talking. Uh, <laughs> uh, Elihu, not really Avery, Aiden. <laughs> uh, Elihu says he's been listening for some time but has not said anything because he is younger and does not want to be disrespectful to his elders. Um, yet at this time, Elihu's not happy with anyone. He believes there's been far too much uh, umphaloskepsis. That's nasal gazing. I mean, navel gazing. You know, I'm going to keep going now. I don't know what nasal gazing is. I guess it's trying to look up your nose. Navel gazing. Uh, and pointing at Job and not enough focusing on God. So he goes through four monologues about the greatness of God's justice and the greatness of God's mercy, uh, which 
are both beyond human understanding. And uh, he challenges Job to consider that perhaps his sufferings might be in some way the delivering, de- deliberate acts of a loving God. And he concludes this in chapter 37. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness that he will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. And then finally, in chapter 38, God himself enters the discussion and criticizes those who have spoken words without knowledge. Uh, In one of the most remarkable descriptions in the Bible of God's work in creation, I mean, hopefully you've read the book of Job. It really is an incredible description of God's creative work. God paints a picture for Job and the others of his very unique and very solidly sovereign power. Uh, As he says at one point, who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? God looks at the natural world and considers the many things he has made from seas to stars, from ostriches to oxen. It really is an incredible, incredible look at creation. Then in chapter 40, God addresses Job directly and he says, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. And I love Job's response. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? And I love this part. I lay my hand on my mouth. In other words, I'm going to shut up now. Uh, He says, I have spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. He really is saying, yeah, I'm... I'm, I'm a schmuck. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be quiet now. And God replies, Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. So in the remainder of these chapters, 40 and 41, God continues to instruct Job and the others about who he is. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And then in chapter 42, the last chapter, starting in verse 3, Job makes this final confession. It says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things that were too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you and and make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. And then it ends here, 42, with God telling Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar that they have been wrong. Notice he he doesn't say anything to Elihu at this point about, man, you done messed up. But he says that what Job has said about God has been accurate. Uh, And then he blesses Job. And there's some interesting interesting things about what God does not say. We'll talk about in a minute. Uh, If we look at the three long cycles of dialogue uh, between Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Job, we can kind of summarize all the arguments that Job's friends make pretty easily. Basically, their argument is this. Job, what's happened to you is really bad. 
Ah, oh, Captain Obvious has arrived. You must have sinned most extraordinarily because God is just and punishes sin. Now, is any of that wrong? And, and though you deny having sinned, we know you must have. Probably so. There can be no other explanation. Probably not. Uh, a lot of things they said were fundamentally right, but being right doesn't always mean you're right. It, this is a, a weird thing. They, God said, you are speaking without knowledge. So sometimes in our effort to be right, we're saying the wrong things, even though they might in some instance be right. Uh, it, it really is interesting to me, all of this. And every time basic, Job basically responds, no, I didn't. Uh, not that he has never sinned, but that no great hidden sin has marked his life to call for such a calamity. Uh, and Job's friends keep coming back to the basic idea, you get what you deserve, you get what you deserve. Um, and really their response is like the response of Jesus' disciples in John 9. when they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he be born blind? Uh, and they, these disciples, Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz were every bit as right or wrong as the disciples were. And when we think about them, we can honestly sympathize with them. Um, they wanted to know why this was happening to their friend Job. Um, they didn't deny the reality of the world around us like maybe a Hindu or somebody, a Christian scientist or Buddhist who say suffering isn't real. Um, they, they couldn't abandon um, their orthodoxy by rejecting God's justice or his sovereignty. So that's all they were left with. What they said in and of itself wasn't wrong, but it wasn't a complete, accurate description of who God was. Um, it's kind of like when we say God is love and we never talk about how God is also just and holy. Um, when you have an incomplete picture, ultimately it's, it's wrong. It's, it's a false representation. So that's why even though the things they were saying about God in one aspect were very true, because it, they were leaving out other aspects about who he was, uh, that's why he said, who has darkened my counsel with uh, a lack of understanding. Uh, so when we look at... Uh, Job and his suffering uh, in the world of a sovereign, just God. How could he suffer in this world yet be innocent? Logically for us, uh, something has to give. Uh, Job's innocence would seem the easiest thing to, to toss out. Well, we can't toss out that God is just, so let's toss out that you're innocent. Uh, and we look at this world's explanations. You see people giving up uh, on all three of these as well. Uh, that some deny the reality of suffering, something that God is well-intentioned, but unable to affect any change. And others say, yeah, God is definitely sovereign, but he's not good or just. Uh, but only the Bible has the absolute audacity to tell us that all four can be true, that people can suffer God is good, God is just, and Job was innocent. It seems paradoxical in these things. Um, but I was actually, I was, while I was in the shower, I was 
thinking about this, that logic is an incredibly useful tool, but God defines logic. And so not everything God does is going to fit in with logic. And that's why it is not the logic. It's not winning a logical argument that brings people to Christ. It's the gospel because it's not logical. Good people suffer, yet God is good and God is just, and an innocent person suffered. It, it, logically, it doesn't pan out. Uh, but we all have the tendency of Job's friend. We assume on some level that God intends for us to understand what he's doing through suffering. Uh, the, the argument that, well, that doesn't make sense, so it can't be true, is the epitome of arrogance. It's saying that I am so wise and understanding of all things that if I can't understand it, it cannot be true. Our understanding should never be the basis of believing something. Um, we, we want to understand what he's doing through suffering, but how do we know that's what he intends? How do we know that whatever we think it is, is the purpose? And then why would we condemn him if he's not fulfilling the purpose that we think he should? And these are the questions that the book of Job poses for us in all of this. Uh, and maybe above all of this, the book of Job teaches us that we don't know everything. We don't possess all of the facts. Um, look at the interchange between God and Satan that sets all of this up. Um, Satan asks God for permission to afflict Job. Of course, this is after God goes, hey, look at my servant Job. I mean, God is the one who actually initiated all of this. So Satan asked God for permission to afflict Job in order to prove something. And God grants his permission to Satan to do this. Uh, now, how much did Job know about this dialogue between God and Satan? None of it. At least he never mentions any knowledge of it. Uh, if, he, if he knew it, surely in all of this interaction, this discussion back and forth between him and his friends... He would have brought it up. Oh, you guys think that's it? Well, let me tell you, the devil wanted to do this to me. He never brings that up. He just uh, insists on his innocence. So Job most likely had no idea that this was, was going on. Um, and God, when he starts talking to Job, he never even mentions that part to Job. He never even tells Job, hey, Satan came against you. There's nothing like, hey, Job, sorry about that. It's... I kind of directed, I pointed you out to Satan. Next thing I know, he's wanting to do all these things to you. There's nothing like that. Job is completely left in the dark in all of this. And so not only did Job not understand, but his friends did not understand why he suffered. Um, we understand only because God told us through the narrator here. So again, it's not about understanding why. It's simply telling us that Sometimes we understand, but only sometimes. And when we don't understand, we can always trust. Uh, when Paul wrote to the Philippians, he was talking about a peace that surpasses all understanding. Uh, and in that context, he appears to be talking about uh, a state where we are reconciled with God, uh, that we are more satisfied with him than anything we may understand about our passing circumstances. And that's why we have that peace that surpasses all understanding. Uh, and Paul says it clearly that that is the peace that we have, that if we were a Christian, we have experienced that kind of a peace. 
that we are more satisfied with God than in any understanding of what's going on around us. We don't have to understand what's going on around us. All we need is God. Uh, we need to trust because of our lack of understanding. If we insist on living only according to our understanding and completely apart from trust, then we can't be Christians. We need to know how to trust. Uh, but the good news is we have a basis for trust, and that's the power that God has displayed throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Job uh, is a book of poetry. It, it doesn't read like a typical narrative. And uh, I love how in this poetic form it grapples with the problem of, of suffering, yet we never find an explanation but we understand more of who God is. Remember, that's the point of Scripture, to, to make us, to enable us to know God more. And it's in that knowledge of God that we find the evidence we need uh, to base our trust. We see his creation of all things. We see his power and his competency. We, we see his providence in caring for everything he's created, uh, especially his care for us. Uh, and then we know that he is one who can be trusted. So as we read through the, the dialogues between Job and his friends, we find that Job is actually very dismissive about the state of man's life. Uh, in several passages, Job speaks of man's days being a fleeting shadow, uh, flying by faster than a weaver's shuttle. You know, the, the shuttle is a thing they sent across to, to draw the thread through as they're weaving a blanket or whatever. So when he's talking about going faster than a, a weaver's shuttle, if you've ever wa watched somebody weaving, I mean, they just, whoom, that shuttle just flies through. So uh, that it's, it's faster than that. Our life flies by quicker than the weaver's shuttle, and we return to dust. Uh, that, isn't, that, isn't that amazing that they were, had that technology, yet the world tries to tell us that? <laughs> oh, they were primitive. Oh, yeah. Uh, I have a book called The Genius of Ancient Man that is actually a fascinating read about that kind of stuff um the technology that quote unquote primitive man had um that is a slap in the face to evolution uh it's really interesting uh, <laughs> all right i will genius of ancient man uh so uh job speaks dismissively of life and man life is it just passes by it's fleeting uh, why do we have it why even bother um god is in all his heavenly court though uh, are arranged around the fair the affairs of these sons and daughters uh, of god that that god still cares for us uh that we are but dust yet god still cares for us um but again the basis this basis for trust, this basis of trust that God cares for us. It's never given to Job. He was never told about this heavenly court scene that took place between Satan and God uh, that we're allowed to peek into. Um, all the evidence he has for trusting God in these uh, is the fact that of God himself, that Job trusted God. It simply is. It's not about evidence. About It's about it simply is. I simply trust him. Uh, now, was Satan wrong in the heavenly courts when he said that Job would turn on God? Yeah, Satan accuses Job of serving God for his own selfish ends. We see that in chapter 1. 
Uh, he says that Job serves God only because he's wealthy. Now, God already knew that Satan was wrong, and that's why he allows Satan to take away Job's wealth. And yet, even with that, Job continues to worship God. Um, but just because he's been proven wrong, Satan is Satan. He's going to continue to accuse, find fault, even amidst, uh, amid our obedience to God. So with his first effort to cause Job to curse God failing, he says this. Oh, surely, Satan says, you can take up everything a man has. But if you touch his body, then you'll find out what he really cares about. Then he will curse you to your face. And again, God allows Satan to do what he asks, taking away Job's health. And Satan is proven, away, proven wrong again. Uh, even as he's got these boils and he's wasting away, he still worships God. Uh, his changing circumstances reveal that as wealthy as he is, Job's not worshiping God because of his wealth. Uh, and his circumstance re circumstances also reveal that as healthy as he is, he's not worshiping God because of his health. The true worship of God doesn't depend on our circumstances. We can give him thanks for our good circumstances, but true worship happens when, through the grace that God gives, we, regardless of our circumstances, lift him up as our sovereign, worthy creator and king. Uh, and this brings us to one of the ironies of the book. Uh, most of the book consists of Job's friends saying, Hey, Job, I know you look virtuous, but there's got to be some sin here. There's got to be some sin here. Otherwise, you wouldn't be experiencing all of this punishment. That's how they were viewing it, as punishment, which is why we need be careful about declaring that when somebody is going through something, it's because they're being punished or disciplined by God. Um, if we lived back in the first century, we would have been sure that Paul was being punished by God with everything that Paul went through. Yet we know that it wasn't. So that's why we need to be careful of declaring our certainties of why God does certain things. Um, Job's friends were far from being right. Uh, that, uh, sorry, I lost my place in my notes. They were far from being right. There we are. Uh, we know that God didn't put Job through these things because of Job's sin. It was actually Job's righteousness that got him into this position. Uh, it was his righteousness. He was God's workmanship, and, and God had caused Job to trust him, and God knew that he did. And that's why he says to Satan, consider my servant. He knew that Job trusted him. He knew that Job worshiped him. Uh, and this means that we also do not trust God because we're so clever or holy, uh, but because God's character is trustworthy. That's why we trust God. Uh, you know, Job hadn't read the first part of the book of Job. He was only shown the character of God himself, not everything that set the stage for this. Sorry, I lost my place again. Uh, so it's interesting to see how um, these books, you know, uh, portray suffering through the Bible. In the book of Ruth, Naomi's charge against God implied a charge against his justice. Uh, and, she was, and she was shown through her circumstances 
that she was wrong. God is good. Uh, and knowing the identity, again, we 20, hindsight is twenty twenty. Knowing the identity of the child that Ruth uh, was going to give birth to, we understand just how good God was to Naomi. I mean, she was the great-grandmother of King David. Uh, uh, but absolutely no explanation of Naomi's suffering happened in the first place. Only some evidence that God chose to bless her. Chance, I mean, chances are she never knew what came of her line, that, that her great-grandson David would be made king. She never saw any of that, yet it doesn't negate the fact her, her ignorance of God's blessing doesn't negate that she was blessed by God. Uh, and then we, we come to Job here, and we see great suffering again. And this time from Job or to Job from God himself about God's character to help him trust God. So the insight for us is, here is why the suffering happened, but there's still no universal purpose statement. Sorry, I, I don't know if I'm getting tired, but I'm getting, it's getting harder to get my thoughts. Uh, let me guzzle some coffee. Not that caffeine helps me, but maybe mentally it'll help me. You know, I can pretend that it's helping me. All right, let me gather my thoughts again. Uh, so, there's no universal purpose statement here. For suffering, In other words, we can't go to the book of Job and go, this is why all suffering in the world takes place. This is a unique situation. That's why, you know, when we look at this and we say, this doesn't tell us why suffering happens, we go, well, yes, it does. It tells us in the very beginning why all this happened. Yeah, for Job. But not for, it's not a universal blanket for why suffering happens to, to people. And that's why it's wrong to use the book of Job for that. That's why Job's friends were wrong, even though what they said about God in and of itself wasn't wrong. They had an incomplete knowledge, which meant they gave an incomplete picture of who God was or is, and that meant they were wrong. Uh, so there's no universal statement here for why suffering happens. Uh, and then later on, we're going to be coming to Habakkuk. Um, do you guys, how many say Habakkuk? How many say Habakkuk? Okay, I'll, I'll try to say Habakkuk then. Uh, Habakkuk. Habakkuk. <laughs> uh, so uh, I think what it is, I've been talking so long and just reading through notes that everything is just, any comments or anything on anything we've said to break up the monotony of my voice. Please. <laughs> Why do we pronounce it Job and not Job? <laughs> you know, that's a good question. Let's spend the next 10 minutes talking about that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Probably the same reason we say John, Jonah and not Jonna. Although I had a friend named Jonna. It was a, she was a girl. How was it spelled? J-O-N-N-A. So, <laughs> okay, here we go. All right, Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Was you here? No, I'm back. Okay, go back to that's the English pronunciation. 
When I want to know how to say a name, I always go. So, so Habakkuk. <laughs> well, yeah. Job. Job. So, according to Strong's importance in Job, phonetic spelling is Yob. Yob. Well, there it goes. That's how I'm going to say it the rest of the time. Yob. 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 It sounds Jamaican. It does. Yob. 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 All right. It does. <laughs> it sounds like maybe it's skittish. <laughs> the word is Yiddish, for those of you who didn't catch what I said, being wrong. Yiddish, not skittish. Skittish. All right. We'll get back to the droning on of my voice now. I think that it was just getting to me that I felt like I'm just droning on and on and on. And What's that? You can do this kind of sign. Oh, yes. Yes. So, all right. Thank you for that little uh, diversion there. And then we come to Habakkuk. Habakkuk. What was it? Habakkuk? Now I can't remember what it was. So the way I was saying it was the right way. Yeah. Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so we come along to Habakkuk, another book about suffering, and like Job, no explanation for it. Uh, so at the end of the day, it's a statement about God's character that allows us to trust, and not God's purposes that allows us to trust. Always keep in mind, the reason we trust is because of his character, not his purposes. Because we always know his character. We don't always know his purposes. Is That's an incredible nugget there. That we trust because of who he is, not because of his purposes. Oh, that's such a, a great thing there. Job. So by this time, revelation from Job to God himself about God's character, uh, and that's why we trust him, his character. Uh, and again, that's insight for us, not for Job. Uh, then we come to Habakkuk. Again, and like Job, there's no explanation in Habakkuk about the suffering taking place there. It's about God's character. But then we see something new. In verses like, For the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's Habakkuk 2.14. A purpose statement that kind of helps us understand some uh, what's behind all of the suffering. For the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the seas. Uh, and then finally we get to the New Testament. Uh, there we see the greatest injustice, and that is the crucifixion of Christ. The murder of the innocent Son of God. And this greatest of injustices, of course, was used for the greatest good 
ever conceived, the glorification of God. I bet you thought I was going to say the salvation of mankind. By the greatest good ever conceived, the glorification of God, which was through salvation of mankind for his sins. But the greatest good was the glorification of God. And so statements about suffering in the New Testament can point back to this pivotal event. Um, if God can use this event, the crucifixion of Christ, uh, for the greatest good, how much more can we trust that the suffering in our daily lives will be used for his good purposes? Uh, the greatest evil ever, the crucifixion of Christ, used to achieve the greatest of good. So surely God can take the things that we are going through, and surely he does use them for incredible good. Uh, in Romans 8.32, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So we see a progression there. It's the same problem every time. How does suffering of God's people jive, uh, align itself, mesh with God's sovereignty and mercy? And it's the same answer every time. Not an explanation, but a call to trust. Uh, one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 11, first three verses, hey, the wicked are bending the bow. They're aiming at the heart of the righteous. What can the righteous do when the foundations crumble away? And then verse four. The, Lord's, the Lord is in his temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Again, it's not telling us why or what to do. It's reminding us of who he is. It's not an explanation. He doesn't tell us what to do or why it's happening. He simply says, this is who I am. Trust me. This is who I am. Trust me. And through the centuries, uh, throughout Israel's history, throughout the history of the church, there's more and more evidence to base this trust uh, on the character of God, especially when he, we see it culminating in Christ and his glory. Uh, I mean, he sent his son. How much more do we need to trust his character and his faithfulness to his promise that he made thousands of years before and he fulfilled it? And there are times that God does let us uh, see how he's used a difficult situation for our good. Uh, my parents' divorce. My whole family is saved now, and that's what he used as the turning point. Um, I won't go into it now. It's a, it's a long story. But yeah, I can point to my parents' divorce to say that's the event that God used to bring my whole family to salvation. Uh, so there are times when God does allow us to see how he's used a difficult situation for our good. Doesn't mean every time, but there are times. Uh, and absolutely, we should thank him for such moments of understanding. But it doesn't mean that we should also praise him when there are no moments. Yeah. It doesn't mean we should not praise him when there are no moments of that understanding. Uh, whether there's understanding or not, he is still the same God. He is still the same God, worthy of the same trust, worthy of the same praise and worship. Um, I love how Job said it in Job 19. I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, he will stand upon the earth. In other words, what is his trust in? Who his Redeemer is. That's, where he play, that's why he has trust. Um, 
So we mentioned earlier the story of the disciples asking Jesus regarding the blind man. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Uh, they were asking the wrong question. Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God, the glory of God, might be displayed in his life. So for each one of us, God intends to display his glory in our lives uh, to everyone around us. We can be certain of that because that is the purpose of our existence. And he, how he intends to do this, uh, we can see all kinds of instances in scripture how he does it, but it doesn't mean he's going to do it the same way in all of our lives. Uh, as creative and imaginative as he is and how he sovereignly works in every spider web of our networking existence, that's how unique it is, how he works for his glory through each one of us. As unique as each of our lives is, is as unique as how he works his glory in and through our lives. Uh, so could it be that one day we'll watch as he shows to all creation the unrevealed glories of, of what he's done by making you in his image and remaking you as his child? Absolutely. Absolutely he will display that to all creation. That's what he says in Ephesians when he says that he will, uh, that through us, through the church, his wisdom is made manifest to all the heavenly beings. That all the heavenly beings are going to look at what God did in and through us and go, God is all wise and all glorious. So we often suffer. We sometimes understand. And by God's grace, we can always trust. Any questions or comments? So here we are picking up lesson 12, looking through the Psalms. So uh, we're going to just read through the book of Psalms verse by verse. Uh, uh, summary of the book of Psalms is pretty easy. It's a prayer and praise book of God's son and God's people. There we go. Um, but that the, the book of Psalms is a book of songs um, in the form of prayers and praise uh, of both God's son and God's people. Remember how we were talking about uh, the bulk of wisdom literature is about one about how the king it's written by kings to kings um, but that doesn't mean it's not for us as well but so it's a book of God's son and God's people and uh, I would like for us to read through the last three psalms uh, so if you turn to Psalm 148 and, and this is why uh, men's prayer meeting on Wednesday mornings, we pray through the Psalms. And this is why, because they already are uh, prayers. So it makes it very easy. Uh, if you're not used to praying through scripture, it makes it very easy to start with the book of Psalms. But Psalm 148 there says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created, and he established them forever and ever. 
He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. Uh, what would you say is a common theme, common phrase here, key word? Peaceful. <laughs> Peaceful. Uh, all his. What? Yeah, praise the Lord. Then Psalm 149, praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and a two-edged sword in their hands. To execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples. To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. To execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Is that not a strange context for praise? Uh, execute vengeance on the nations, punishments on the people. In the context of this is praise to the Lord. Uh, but it's because his justice on display is worthy of praise, worthy of glory. And then Psalm 150, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. All right. Uh, in case you didn't pick up on the theme here. Symbols, symbols. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. I'll take your word for it. This is the Old Testament. It doesn't apply. Uh, that, I mean, that's talking to some of my friends who go to those kind of churches. That's typically what they'll say. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard other reasons why. Are they serious? Yeah, yeah. That that was an Old Testament thing, and because in Ephesians it says we're to sing to one another. That so it the, that's the reason I was given. I don't know if you guys have ever heard any other. I just thought people had bad taste. <laughs> that's what I always thought. Oh no, it's yeah. They say this is the Old Testament, and the New Testament we're singing to one another. So be careful not to shuffle your feet. Unless it sounds like a drum. 
Yes, yes. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, the Psalms are often described as the hymnal of the Bible. And uh, through the ed- ages, uh, people have testified, Christians have testified to the power uh, and even the, the peace or the serenity uh, that the Psalms give as they speak to God in both times of sadness, times of joy, times of suffering, times of celebration. Um, the question today is, how do they speak to us? And, well, we'll, we'll I don't want to get ahead of myself. Uh, the book of Psalms is one way God has given us to talk to him in a way that honors him while never minimizing the trials we know. Um, never, for any person who is going through something, for them, their suffering is real. Regardless if we think it's insignificant or not, for them, the suffering is real. And that's what we see here, that God never minimizes the trials that we do know. Um, John Calvin says this, I've been accustomed to call this book an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there's not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities. In short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. The other parts of Scripture contain the commandments which God enjoined his servants to announce to us. But here, the prophets themselves see they are exhibited to us as speaking to God, draw each one of us to the examination of himself in particular, in order that none of the many infirmities to which we subject, to which we are subject, and of the many vices with which we abound, uh, may remain concealed. Uh, that's from Calvin's commentaries. Uh, And so God has given us each his own words to use as our words. Again, it's why in the men's prayer meeting, this is what we do. We pray back uh, the Psalms. He has given us his words to use as our words. Uh, So in good times, nothing is a better expression of praise to God than the word of the Psalms. Uh, In bad times, nothing better reminds us that God knows our sorrows and our troubles than the words of the Psalms. Uh, Jesus on the cross turned to at least two different psalms, Psalm 22 and Psalm 30, 31. Uh, bless you. So today we want to, yes, uh, we want to study the psalms by posing several questions. What are they? Who wrote them and when? How are they structured? What are the different types of psalms? How do the psalms point us to Jesus? And how do we read the Psalms as Christians? So what are they? Uh, The book of Psalms is a collection of 150 musical poems and prayers uh, with different human authors. um, Most of them written by David, but we have the sons of Korah. Solomon wrote some. Some of them don't know, Um, but written by different uh, people. All of them were written in Hebrew. And some unfamiliar words appear in them, such as the word uh, sila. And they're probably, as far as we know, notes for musical direction or worship direction. 
and a lot of them uh, have introductory notes that are pretty reliable usually. You know, it says a Psalm of David or a Psalm of the Sons of Korah. Uh, pretty, we can treat those as reliable. Um, which, I, and a note on that, <clears throat> not just reliable, but they're part of the text. So mm. a, one of the negatives of having textual comments like we do, um, and I don't know, I'm so it just flipping from Psalms to Proverbs, uh, mm-hmm. in between verses 19 and 20, there's a little heading that says, the call of wisdom. Well, that's just the organizer's comment on, okay, that's what this section is. And we're tempted to read that into the Psalms, but when we see it in Psalms, it's actually in the text. Uh, according to the Gatith, a Psalm of David. So mm-hmm. whatever musical thing a Gatith was, a Psalm of David is actually in the text. It's not an organizational note later on. Mm, that's good. That's good. Um, so it would be inspired. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, Sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. That was good. That was good. Um, <coughs> oh, yeah. Jesus uh, gave these uh, superscriptions uh, great weight when he was basing one of his arguments with the Pharisees on them uh, in referencing back one of the Psalms and who wrote it. And so, uh, yeah, what Matt was saying. So the traditional Hebrew title for the book comes from a word that means songs of praise. Songs of praise. Um, the title Psalms that we use comes from the, the first Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, and what was that called? Yeah, we have the Septuagint, um, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, and it was actually from the word sala, which means to pluck, um, you know, like a stringed instrument, because these were, were songs, uh, because most of them uh, were composed for and sung on special occasions and this is actually it is the book of psalms but it 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 just kind of annoys me when people say let's turn to psalms 50 no it's psalm 50 you know it's it's a song it's it's not a it's a psalm so uh psalm 50 not psalms 50 it's a book of psalms but each chapter is a psalm um they were composed for and sung on special occasions uh, for at least five of them, they're created for the coronation of the king, in fact. And some of them appear to be connected to historical events. Uh, like 14 of them are linked to uh, times in the life of David. Like when Nathan the prophet confronted him over his sin with Bathsheba, he wrote Psalm 51. Yeah, Psalm 51. And so a lot of them, uh, relatively speaking, were linked to David and things going on in his life and a lot of what was going on in the life of the nation of Israel. And the Psalms are entirely poetry. Um, There's no uh, strict narrative in there, uh, although through the poetry of the Psalms, there there is narrative, but not like what we saw in the history books or the, the Pentateuch, not that type of narrative. Uh, it means that the language is condensed and it uses a lot of imagery in its structure rather than just listing out this is what happened. Uh, and we sometimes don't think of it as poetry because of the way English poetry is structured with 
um, sound and rhythm and rhyme and Dr. Seuss and reading his books. Um, but Hebrew poetry uses uh, different literary devices like parallelisms uh, and stuff like that. If, if you've never looked at how at Hebrew literary devices, it really is fascinating to see how they said things and why they said things and, and how they wrote. But they, they use things to reinforce or contrast or develop and expand an idea. Uh, an exa example of reinforcement is Psalm 103, verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Uh, he's saying something twice in a different way to reinforce the point. Uh, Psalm 63, 8 gives us an example of contrast. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Um, this uh, expresses our desire to hold on to God, but then it turns the idea around and reminds us that he is the one holding on to us. Uh, so these are just a couple of the ways the, the literary tools that they used really are fascinating. Uh, and it really does bring out so much depth uh, in these psalms. And uh, God has arranged the verses of the psalms very deliberately, and he uses uh, rhetorical devices that make them really accessible to all kinds of people in all kinds of languages. Um, however you translate it, the message of the Psalms is going to come out. A guy named Derek Kidner uh, wrote a commentary on the Psalms, and he said this, The poetry of the Psalms has a broad simplicity of rhythm and imagery which survives transplanting into almost any soil. Above all, the fact that its parallelisms are those of sense rather than of sound allows it to reproduce its chief effects with very little loss of either force or beauty. It is well fitted by God's providence to invite all the earth to sing the glory of his name. Think of English poetry that, that depends a lot on rhyming or alliteration. Well, you translate that into another language and you lose the rhyming, you lose the alliteration, you, you lose what makes it it. But God wrote this in such a way that it, it doesn't depend on that. Uh, I love that when he says its parallelisms are those of sense rather than of sound. Um, our God is brilliant. He really, really is. So who wrote the Psalms and when? Uh, the Psalms, as we mentioned, were written by many different people, um, including Moses. He wrote Psalm 90, uh, so long time before David. Uh, we have Ezra, who may be the author of Psalm 119 uh, and a few other Psalms after the exile. Uh, and of course, in addition to Moses and Ezra, we have the sons of Korah, Asaph, Solomon, David, uh, 73 have been written by David, uh, according to the superscriptions. Uh, and most of the early Psalms, well, most of the Psalms in the beginning of the book uh, are those written by David. Uh, and it closes with a similar grouping as well. A lot of the last Psalms are written by David. And we're not certain, but perhaps it was Ezra who compiled and organized them in their present form uh, for use in the temple. Uh, and of course, as, even though the book has many human authors, Jesus makes it clear that behind all of this is a single author, God. Any questions, comments?
Yes. I remember and, uh, that. <laughs> we were we were doing a fundraiser for Avery and Jody, and uh, then a certain guy, God bless him, in uh, whatever country he was in, hijacked their thing and started trying to run a scam on everybody who was giving towards him, and we couldn't make him stop. Like we had to report it, and then you had to get the the thing to do it. So we ended up just having to pull the fundraiser down but I I sent him a lengthy message with every imprecatory prayer in the Psalms that I could find (laughs) (laughs) and I said uh, be aware of that which you are doing and repent of it that's the call that Christians would have but if you do not repent may all these curses of the Bible fall upon you and then I just listed them all off (laughs) (laughs) may your children be struck down in the streets (laughs) (laughs) I felt good about Africa, it. Will be serious. Yes. Well, that was kind of my thought. Yep. Like, oh, uh-oh. Did yep. Did that stop uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we ended up having to take the thing down. Yeah. No. Uh, that, I, that was hilarious. That was infuriating. Yes. <laughs> yep. uh, I would say the the hardest thing that I've I would say the heart of the imprecatory psalms are to see justice done, to see God's... Um, righteousness and glory vindicated and so i think that heart is still absolutely applicable today we still want to see god's righteousness justice and god's glory vindicated um so i think the heart of the imprecatory psalms is still very applicable to us today um now (laughs) you know when david is or whoever wrote it saying some of the things they said were like oh my but that is what God inspired him to write. So I think our, our problem today is we still sometimes have that view that, oh, the innocent people. Uh, when, as we were talking about God driving the people out of Canaan by having Israel go in and utterly destroy them, there are no innocents. Um, but I definitely think the, that desire to see justice accomplished that desire to see the righteousness and glory of god vindicated i think is a very appropriate response to injustice and wickedness in the world Uh, a good uh maybe just a study i don't want to say experiment but kind of is as you guys read through the psalms read it and watch for how many times the psalmist rejoices when God crushes the enemies. Mm-hmm. Not just the may this happen, but what we think is the imprecatory prayers. But how often the psalmist rejoicing, because, you know, what percentage of them are because, you know, so and so is oppressing me or, you know, they're pressing hard against me. And then his rejoicing is either God will get them or God just got them. And I would actually argue that the imprecatory mm-hmm. is built into almost all of the psalms. Mm. And we just have this, we've adopted a mindset from culture over the last 150 years that has lost the fact that God's people rejoice when God crushes his enemies. We feel guilty about it. And the psalmist sings about it, writes songs about it. Mm -hmm. I think we better approach that with caution. Mm -hmm. But but it's, it's in there. 
Yeah. And it's also one where instead of retaliating ourselves, it's always going to God with us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think, like when I talk to my kids about current events, uh, they ask, so is China our enemy? I'm like, yes, China is our enemy. It doesn't mean every Chinese person is bad or that every Chinese person is our enemy, but China is our enemy. And when we look at the imprecatory Psalms, I, to the best of my knowledge, when David is rejoicing over the downfall of his enemies or praying that they will be destroyed, it's not directed at an individual. <laughs> it's, reject, it's, it's his enemy, that kingdom, that nation. Um, will I pray that my neighbor who keeps blasting his music at one in the morning will have his children dashed upon the rocks? I don't know. Um, but, uh, what kind of music is it? <laughs> yeah, what kind of music is it? Um, but praying that a nation that raises, rises itself up against God's chosen people would be decimated. Yeah. So. <laughs> yes, yes. That's a good question. It's, it's one that I, the question you brought up is one I think a lot of people struggle with, like, like Matt said, especially, especially in the past 150 years or so. Yep. Uh, especially since that's one that a lot of uh, scoffers and skeptics, that's a point they bring up is the imprecatory Psalms. Oh, a loving God, you know that. Yep. That's good. Any other thoughts or questions on that? All right. So how are the Psalms structured? Um, they're divided into five books, and each book concludes with a doxology, and that's uh, a, a special song of praise to God. We have what's called the doxology that we sing, <clears throat> but really doxology just simply means a special song of praise to God, or, or that's what it is. All right, can I interrupt? Oh, yeah. There was one that came to mind. And, oh, yeah. Uh, so... It's not in the Psalms, but it's by David when he has the interaction with Nabal. Oh, yes. He's being, he's being chased by Saul. Yes. And uh, I always think we have to, I, I agree with what John said, but I think we have to approach that stuff with caution. Like, no, let's yeah. talk about nations, not individuals. Because I, I think there's a chance we're doing eisegesis when we look at that. Mm -hmm. uh, but the story, in case you don't remember it, Nabal's. Like, who is this David? What do I care about him? David's like, dude, I'm going to wipe you out tomorrow. So Abigail, Nabal's wife, like Nabal's out at some party and he's drunk and he doesn't know it. So she sneaks all this food out. She's like, have mercy. He's an idiot. <laughs> and then she doesn't tell him until he sobers up the next morning. And when he sobers up, she tells him and his heart becomes like a stone and he doesn't move for, I don't know, how many days. Uh, what? I, I'm just looking past here. Uh, heart failed him, became like a stone about 10 days, and the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord who has <laughs> upheld my cause against Nabal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that... I, I think we don't we don't go around praying heart attacks on people <laughs> via charismatic cursing, but uh, like recognizing that it, it's that whole thing. 
don't take vengeance, leave room for God. And when God mm -hmm. executes perfect, righteous judgment, we celebrate that. Even though we maybe mourn the fact of uh, somebody's lack of repentance, we also celebrate the perfect, righteous executing of justice that God does. Yes. That, and that's, I think, yeah. where you have to be careful because what we want is payback because we're ticked and we feel like we're owed it as yeah. opposed to celebrating God's perfect vindication. Yeah. So, yeah, it comes back to that heart issue. Kind of like what we talked about with the sacrifices. Kind of like everything else. <laughs> kind of like everything else. <laughs> yes. Where's, where's the song about having it carried for me? That was the Last Supper. Where they had at least two concealed carries. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, in these structures, divided into five books within the Psalms, uh, each one concluding with a doxology, and actually book five ends with five doxologies. That's part of what we just read. Uh, Psalm 145 through 150 are doxologies, um, and we read the last three, and they serve kind of as a climax uh, to the whole collection of psalms with psalm 150 uh being the conclusion of what we'd call the psalter uh which is not the thing that holds your salt at the table uh, book one includes psalms 1 through 41 uh, and that was probably assembled during david's lifetime or right around the end of it uh, and these first two psalms are particularly worthy uh of noting uh, psalm 1 presents us with two types of people the righteous and the wicked. Uh, the righteous, verses 1 through 3, it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk, stand, or sit with the wicked. It says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season. And uh, the tree imagery here reminds us... Uh, maybe of the garden or maybe some people look at it as the eschological temple in Ezekiel 47. Um, but who is a model of righteousness living, who delights in God's law, meditating on day and night, meditating on it day and night? Any of the Israelites? Is it any of us, this, this righteous man? And again, with the way we think of things, I've heard a lot of sermons on what does it mean to not walk or what is the significance of the order here? He says, do not walk, do not stand, do not sit. There could be some, some significance to that. Um, or it could be just that way that the Hebrew language speaks of things, uh, repeating the same thing in different ways to emphasize the point. Uh, and then Psalm 2 follows on the heels of Psalm 1. That's why it's called Psalm 2. Uh, and... Verse 2, it talks about the kings of the earth taking their stand against the Lord and his Messiah. Uh, verse 5, God rebukes him or them. Verse 6, God installs his king. And then verses 7 through 9 say this. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So 
we have this promise of this messianic figure who will be king and messiah and son and who's going to rule over the earth. So at the beginning of this, there's uh, an eschatological. Eschatological. Thank you. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Eschatological uh, expectation of the Messiah's rule over the whole earth. And then right after this, we have 30 Psalms by David uh, calling attention to him. Uh, Stephen Dempster captures the point in his book, Dominion Dynasty. He says this, It is clearly David who is emerging as the focus of the Bible. Somehow the hopes of the Israelite nation are placed on his shoulders. Um, I would say more precisely, uh, the one David is pointing to. Uh, Then we go on to book two of the Psalms. That's chapters 42 through 72. And the Psalms often address uh, distress, difficulty, uh, experienced by people. And speaking generally, uh, Psalms 42 through 72 are psalms of great comfort for people going through different situations. Then we've got book three, uh, which is comprised of a fewer psalms, 73 through 89. And a lot of these psalms were probably written after the exile to Babylon. Uh, They may have been written as a source of comfort or solace uh, with the the catastrophe that had taken place. Um, And so these help us understand they they shed some light on the apparent triumph of evil men and how fleeting that really is in light of God's greater purpose. Sometimes when I'm reading through some of these psalms, I actually feel sorry for some of these guys who are billionaires who are living a life that, you know, a lot of people may be envious of, or I feel sorry for a lot of the liberal activists who are waging their very godless wars and seem to experience victory. And I'm like, you know what? Their little victory, that's all the joy they will ever have. And how fleeting will it be? And then they will spend an eternity in hell. And I... I, I really feel sorry for them. Um, so it, it really does uh, shed some light on how fleeting the, this apparent triumph of evil men is in light of God's greater purposes. Uh, and then we have book four, uh, Psalms 90 through 106. Uh, and this book shows the importance of worship in the wake of exile. That worship... Again, it's not because of our circumstances that we worship. It's because of who God is. Uh, This section really stresses divine kingship and then contrasts that with human kingdoms. Psalm 110 is a good example of this. Uh, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the whole earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. 
therefore he will lift up his head. So it's a good example. Yep. He'll execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. And yet this is a psalm of, wow, look how awesome the divine king is. So, Can you imagine if we sang that? On a Sunday <laughs> look at all the dead bodies. Isn't it awesome? People are like, that church is a cult. <laughs> it's dramatic. And once you start seeing this, it's everywhere in the psalms. Yes. I, I, you write songs. I think you should incorporate We're some of this. Yeah. Okay. Pile of corpses is making it into the next worship song. Pile of corpses. <laughs> I think it should be to the tune of Jesus Loves Me. Book five of the Psalms, uh, 107 through 150. And this is the longest section in the Psalms. Uh, it also stresses divine kingship. Uh, its main theme, as we saw from what we just read of the last three, is praise to God. Uh, and it includes the well-known songs of ascent, uh, Psalm 120 through 134, that um, pilgrims often sang these as they approached the temple. That's why it's called uh, songs of ascent, because they're going up uh, as they're ascending to the temple. Uh, and it includes the emotional low point of Psalm 137, uh, which is, recounts the Babylonian pillaging of Jerusalem and where they're captured. Uh, and it, it has these images in it within that psalm. Uh, but then it builds back up, beginning with another set of Psalms of David, to finish with the burst of praise that we read at the very beginning. And uh, we could compare these last five psalms to, uh, you say that like the final minutes of fireworks, you know, what comes at the end, the grand finale, you know, here's the finale, everybody waits for it. And it's just this nonstop barrage. And those last psalms are this nonstop barrage of praise to God. Uh, and so the theme of this section is summed up well uh, by Psalm 150, verse 6, where it says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Uh, just that nonstop barrage. So uh, what are the different kinds of psalms? Uh, there's a lot of different views on this. But generally speaking, we can sort it into about uh, 10 types of, of psalms. Um, there are psalms of lament, psalms of thanksgiving, Psalms of praise, uh, enthronement psalms, royal psalms, psalms of Zion, psalms of trust, liturgies, and Torah psalms. Now, where the imprecatory ones fit in here, um, Well, let's look at continue looking at the examples and we'll see how they fit in here. Uh, so we'll look at an example of just three of them, which make up the vast majority. Um, Psalms of Lament. Uh, first, uh, in Psalm 3, if you've got your Bibles. Uh, 
verse 1, he starts off, O Lord. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Uh, many are saying of my, or many are rising up, are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Uh, so he first, who is he addressing this psalm to? Next, he lays out his complaints. You know, how many are my foes? Uh, there's no salvation for him. But a psalm lament, uh, often nowadays when we talk about lamenting, it's it's a pity party. It's a self-pitying thing. Um, but that's not what a psalm of lament is. It's not a, a pity party. The psalmist then turns and confesses his trust to God. He says, yeah, there's no salvation for him in God. Then in verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I laid down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Uh, so he doesn't just end this with, oh, God's not there, and they're right. There's no one to save me. He uh, turns it around to confess his trust in God. But not only does he trust in God, or say that he trusts in God, he cries out for deliverance. Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O God, he says. Uh, and then usually in one of these Psalms of Lament, this is followed by an assurance of God's character, his, merciful, his mercifulness, his faithfulness. Um, verse 8 here, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Uh, so Psalms of Lament don't pretend that everything goes well, doesn't teach that everything goes well for those who trust in God, but they do encourage us to take our cares to God and then trust him to deliver us based on who he is. It's because of who he is. Uh, and then turn to Psalm 30. Anybody notice the last half of verse 7 while we were yeah. turning there? You punch them in the face. <laughs> yeah, yes. break their teeth. Break their teeth. <laughs> everywhere <laughs> yeah, that one, I guess. if we're gonna in the face, oh Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I can't we'll have South along with it. break their teeth <laughs> <laughs> Yep, the Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his, yep. son. his son. But that's a good reminder of right, what yeah. John said earlier. Like he obviously doesn't have deep hatred, anger, animosity towards his son, because when his son is killed, yeah, he like starts crying like yeah. a baby, mm -hmm. and they have his advisors have to go get up. Like he was an enemy of your kingdom. You're, you're sending the wrong message here. So yeah. that it doesn't have to be, it, it can be God defeat the enemies without, I hate Tony. That's all I got left. That's all I got left. 
Which is what we see way back when Nadab and Abihu died. And God told Aaron, you can't mourn. You can't. They dishonored me before the people. You can't mourn for them in front of the people. Yeah, it's that same thing that they said to David. Yeah. Um, so Psalm of Thanksgiving here, Psalm 30. Uh, Psalms of Thanksgiving uh, are expressions of gratitude um, for what God has accomplished. And like Psalms of Lament, these typically follow a, a standard form. Um, here in verse 1, I will exalt or I will extol you, O Lord. Uh, I will lift you up. And then verses 2 through 3, um, he lays out his motive. Um, you have, I cried out, you healed me, um, you restored me to life. Uh, so he, he's saying this is uh, my motive for giving thanks. And then 4 through 10, um, he goes back to remembering his original plea. And then saying, hey, in verse 8, to you, O Lord, I called. In all of this, to you, O Lord, I called. And then you go down to alert verses 11 and, and 12. You have, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. He recounts God's response. You turned my wailing into dancing. And then it ends with, um, O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So it, it ends again with giving God thanks. And one of my favorite psalms about God's response is Psalm 18, where it's the same thing. David is saying, my enemies have come against me. They're trying to hurt me. And then, oh my goodness, you read the response of God. And it is that, that whole, my dad can beat up your dad response. Oh, it is an awesome psalm to see God's response when somebody comes against his children. It's, it's awesome. Uh, then... We have Psalm 148, which is a psalm of praise. Uh, again, we uh, read this at the very beginning. Uh, psalms of praise are similar to Thanksgiving psalms, um, but they're distinguished by their lack of reference to earlier problems or God's intervention. They're centered on the praise of God. That's, that's really the main difference between thanks and praise Thanks is about what God has done. Praise about is about who God is. Um, and so that's the difference between Psalms of Thanksgiving and Psalms of Praise. One is directed towards extolling God for what he has done. The other is aimed at extolling God for who he is. Uh, and yeah, in verse, or Psalm 148, first we see the summons to praise him. Hey, everybody, praise God. We see that throughout it. And then in verses 5 and 6, um, and 13 and 14, we see reasons for praise. And then it, it ends in verse 14. He has raised up a horn for his people, praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. And it ends with praise the Lord. Uh, again, that, that reiteration that this is what it's about. Praise the Lord. So these are just three of the many different types of psalms. Uh, you know, there are psalms of repentance that, that <clears throat> are another category. Uh, the imprecatory psalms are another category. And that's why we start when, in talking about the different kind of psalms. We say there are many different views on this um, and different, different types of psalms. I don't know if there's necessarily, I think there's a lot of 
uh, crossing. I don't think most of them are hard lines, and this is this type of psalm only. I think we find something, a little bit of all of these in some of the psalms, but uh, that's 10 basic categories, and those are three that we looked at. Lament, thanksgiving, and praise. Uh, questions, comments before we continue on? All right. So how do these point us to Jesus? Uh, and I think most of us know that a lot of the Psalms are messianic in what they are pointing to. They, they are prophetic about Christ. Um, but in, in, in answering that question, how do they point to Jesus? It informs how we as Christians are to read the Psalms. Uh, for instance, Psalm 18, uh, the Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me <clears throat> for I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not done evil by turning from my God. And honestly, sometimes when I read that, when I read the Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, I'm like, oh man, I'm in trouble. But... In Christ, I can rest in the fact that God will deal with me according to my righteousness because I haven't been imputed with the righteousness of Christ. I'm getting ahead of myself, sorry. Uh, but we can only find answers to this question of how should we read these Psalms uh, as Christians by looking at the best commentary available on the Old Testament. What is the best commentary there is on the Old Testament? New Testament? The New Testament. <laughs> so uh, what did Jesus and the New Testament authors say about the Psalms? Basically, they said all the Psalms were fulfilled in Christ. In Luke 24, he, Jesus was talking and says, He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses. He's saying the law of Moses pointed to him. The prophets obviously pointed to him and the Psalms. He says, everything that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, he is there in all of it, in all of it. And so how did he fulfill what was written about him in the Psalms? Uh, there's a book called the ancient love song, finding Christ in the old Testament um, by Charles drew and the, chapter on Psalms, he titles Songs of the Messiah. And he divides the songs of the Messiah into two different types. Songs about the Messiah and songs by the Messiah. And looking at it this way kind of helps us know how Jesus fulfilled uh, the Psalms as well as how we should read them. So we have Psalms about the Messiah. Uh, Psalm 45, one through two says, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, Nations will praise you forever and ever. Uh, so sometimes it's not hard to 
recognize psalms about the Messiah. Uh, a lot of them, well, they, they, they will be prophetic, obviously, pointing to who Jesus is and what he is going to do, what is going to be true about him. Psalm 72, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him, for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun, or his fame continue as, as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Again, very clearly looking toward the coming Messiah. Uh, so what do we do with these psalms? And again, we want to ask what the New Testament says about them. We looked at Psalm 2, uh, and it tells about the coming Messiah who's going to be installed as king, uh, and who's going to dash his enemies like pieces of pottery. And speaking uh, to his audience in Acts 4, speaking to the Jews in Acts 4, Peter and John say this is about Jesus. Uh, <clears throat> and so... So does the author of Hebrews in chapter one, that chapter two is of that Psalm two is talking about Jesus, and then Psalm one ten that we read uh, earlier proclaims Jesus uh, as the Messiah as well. It says, "The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool." Uh, and Jesus quotes this Psalm actually several times. And Peter explicitly says that it points to Jesus in his Pentecost sermon, you know, after the Holy Spirit has come and he's preaching to all the men there in Jerusalem. He explicitly says this is about Jesus. And the author of Hebrew says the same thing. Uh, so obviously the, the language here goes far beyond just talking about whoever the current king was. Uh, these Psalms are about the divine king, the Messiah. So that's Psalms about the Messiah. And then we have Psalms by the Messiah. Uh, and so this is another way the New Testament authors uh, reflect on the Psalms. They put words and experience of David into the mouth and life of Jesus. Um, and that's, that's the sense in which we read these Psalms as if they were by the Messiah. Uh, and here especially, this is where we especially are, are drawn in to that broad range of human experience and emotion that we talked about at the very beginning. Um, you know, Jesus, he clears the temple and he's quoting from Psalm 69, zeal for your house has consumed me. Jesus goes to his death, quoting from Psalm 35, Psalm 69, they hated me without reason and describing his his own turmoil, Jesus quotes David in Psalm 6, my soul is greatly troubled. Uh, a lot of Jesus's last words taken from the Psalms, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst, into your hands I commit my spirit. Uh, things that were from the Psalms that Jesus uh, uttered himself. Uh, but not just about his sufferings, but also his vindication. Uh, Peter points back to Psalm 16, to explain the resurrection. He says, uh, you know, when it says, you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. And then Paul equates Gentiles to the, nation, to the nations as the work of the exalted Christ in Psalm 18. And then even Psalm 22 that Jesus quotes, 
uh, is used to describe his ministry in the church today by the author of Hebrews. He says uh, in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now that's from Psalm 22, but here he is saying, this is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus saying, as Psalm 22 said. So again and again, as we, we read through this, uh, we see that there are words and experiences of the words and experiences of the psalmist are putting being put into Jesus's mouth, being put into Jesus's life. Uh, and there are many more examples, uh, but listen to this quote from Calvin. Again, this is from uh, a, when he said an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, uh, the Psalms. Just ask yourself, who is the book of Hebrews speaking about when it says, for this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way because he himself suffered when he was tempted and he is able to help those who are being tempted. That the Psalms are an anatomy of all the parts of yourself, uh, of the soul. Uh, so any questions uh, before we finish this up? Any comments? All right. Put you in the face. Stab you in the face, Patrick. I do have a nice little comment here. In my uh, introduction to the Psalms of how to apply them, which we went over, but I'll just read it if you guys don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. Reading the Psalms mindful of Jesus is not a clever way to read this book of the Bible, nor is it one way to do so among others. It is the way. A gospel lens to reading the Psalms is how Jesus himself teaches us to read them. As you read this portion of God's word, make these prayers to God your own and consider the ways these Psalms are good news to us, expressing the full range of our emotions and ultimately bringing our minds to rest on the finished work of Christ on behalf of sinners. Amen. Is that a gospel transformation Bible? It is a gospel transformation Bible. Yeah. Such a great study Bible. Yeah, yep. If you're not familiar with the Gospel Transformation Bible, uh, the study notes in the Old Testament are all about how it points to Jesus. So it's a really helpful study Bible uh, when you are studying with the understanding of wanting to see Jesus in the, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, as Jesus said. It's really good. All right. How do we read the Psalms as Christians? One word at a time. So, all right, next. <laughs> so, there are four uh, broad lessons um, about how to read the Psalms as a Christian that, that we'll go over. Uh, one, we read them with sensitivity to the Psalm type, the original Old Testament, Old Testament meaning, and its location in the canon. In other words, we contextualize the Psalm. Um, that's the way we should read all of Scripture. Uh, what type of literature is it? What was the original meaning? And where is it in the canon of Scripture that's keeping it within the context within which it was written? That's not just true of Psalms. It's true for how we read all of Scripture. And 
uh, explicitly uh, messianic psalm like Psalm 2 is going to be read differently than a song of lament like Psalm 3 or a uh, penitent psalm or confession psalm like Psalm 51. Uh, so keep in mind the type of psalm it is. Um, what did the author originally mean? Uh, Peter tells us that no prophecy is subject to our own personal interpretation, uh, but only the Holy Spirit has the right to interpretation. So what did it originally mean? Uh, looking for the author's original intent. And then we need to read each psalm, understanding its unique characteristics and its place in the larger context of Scripture. Uh, and then we read them selectively as the songs of the perfect God-fearing man, the Messiah. Um, remember what we said earlier that, earlier that the book of Psalms is one way God has given us to talk to him in a way that honors him while never minimizing the trials that we know. So when God the Son became man and put on flesh, he entered into the realm of our temptations, our trials, our miseries. And Christ was tempted in every way, uh, Hebrews tells us, just as we are, yet was without sin. It says that he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and that he learned obedient, obedience from what he suffered. So in the Psalms, we, we can listen for the voice of Christ, the voice of the Messiah, uh, which is going to open up new depths of understanding for us. Uh, in Christianity, there there is a great desire to protect the divinity of Christ as it should be, that it is an essential, crucial element to who Christ is. But sometimes we don't as vehemently defend his humanity, which is just as crucial and essential to who he is. Uh, Charles Drew says this, when we turn to the words of the Psalter and read them as Christ's very words, his humanity suddenly comes to life for us. We understand more fully what it means that our Lord submitted himself to the yoke of our flesh in order to redeem us. Read the words of Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. And then picture Jesus at age 12 sitting with the rabbis in his father's house. Hear the boy's quiet words of rebuke to his frantic parents. Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And then wander with fresh insight at the words of Psalm 27, 4. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Uh, so Jesus understands human suffering. Jesus knew the wounds of betrayal and desertion. Uh, Psalm 38, even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Or Psalm 41, you have taken from me my closest friend and have made me repulsive to them. Uh, Jesus knew the fear and the loneliness that drives us to, to God for help. Psalm 25, see how my enemies have increased and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. Jesus knew that in the face of great suffering, there was temptation to doubt God's love. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day. 
but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Jesus knew physical suffering and death. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. So remember that Jesus is the second Adam. Uh, He's the true son of God that Adam was not. And and according to Romans 5, he's the, the new federal head for all who would be sons of God. He is the true Israel, the one who could resist temptation for 40 days in the wilderness, uh, pointing us back to Israel's failure in their 40 years. Uh, In his birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, it it redoes redemption history. He does it all over again. Um, He is the paradigmatic righteous man in Psalm 1. You know, the the righteous man does not walk, sit, or stand, Um, yet he is like a tree planted by, by waters that Uh, gives its fruit in every season. Uh, This can only be Christ. He's the ideal of righteousness in every way throughout the Psalms, throughout the Bible. And this should be a tremendous source of comfort, comfort for us. Again, he was tempted in every way just as we are. He experienced the whole gamut of human experience and emotions, yet was without sin. Uh, this uh, Drew guy again, the ancient love song, says we can drive a, derive immense comfort from reading the Psalms as the word of our mediator. Read this way, they remind us that there exists a man who lived for us the life that we should live but failed to do so. There lives a man who loved to be continually in the courts of the Lord, unlike me. There lives a man who knows the full range of human sufferings better than I do. There lives a man whose sufferings were entirely undeserved, unlike mine. There lives a man who could say, I wash my hands in innocent and go about thy altar, O Lord, singing a song of thanksgiving. A man with clean hands and a pure heart. A man who could truly protest his full righteousness and innocence. That man was not David, and it certainly is not I. It is my great Redeemer, the man Jesus, who not only died in my place, but also lived in my place. The next time you read, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord and are tempted to feel horribly guilty because you would not because you would rather be playing golf than worshiping God. Remember that these are first and foremost the words of the one true worshiper who fulfilled all righteousness on your behalf. More likely than not, when you perceive the matter this way, you will want to put your bags aside and go with thanks to praise the go with thanks to praise the one who has so fully saved you. Uh, that really is a great great passage there. Uh, and then the last way we read these psalms is we read them for ourselves through the mediator. As Christians, we know to only approach God through Christ. Uh, and it is because only through Christ can we approach God with, with confidence. Uh, and so, in other words, as you read the psalms, keep Christ continually, uh, mentally at your side, uh, Graham Goldsworthy said this. Bless you. Well, you know, he didn't say that. (laughs) Thanks, Graham. Uh, We should not be seduced into thinking that the Psalms can speak from and of themselves to us. 
If they speak to us of God, they must speak to us of the God who has finally revealed himself in Jesus Christ. If they speak to us of sinners, they speak to us of those who are outside of Christ. If they speak of the judgment of God, they speak to us of the curse of the law that Christ suffered for his people on the cross. If they speak to us of the faithful, the godly, or the righteous, they speak to us first of Christ and only then of those who are redeemed in Christ. So being sensitive to the context of the Psalms, we can continue to understand them both as amazing models of prayer for us, but also giant, a giant arrow pointing us to Christ. Uh, and one more quote from Charles Drew. At the most profound theological level, worship is a spectator sport. Yeah, sorry, I had to read that again. Because uh, sometimes typos exist. Uh, we gather to watch the Father vindicate His Son in the preaching of the Gospel and to watch the Son give praise to His Father in the praises of our lips. For the Spirit of Christ indwells us and that Spirit lives to extol the Father and the Son. So what he's saying is this, that we the thing that brings us to worship as an active uh, participant ourselves is that we first see the father vindicate his son and the preaching the gospel and to watch the son give praise to the father in the praises of our lips for the spirit of Christ indwells us and that spirit lives to extol the father and the son. So, all right. Anybody else? Uh, questions, comments, thoughts, profound waxings and philosophical. All right. No, yeah. it oh. was my dad who did it. It was secretly me. Sorry. I tried to tell you. Sorry. Your dad. Or you got Printed out the, the things. Are we talking about the threats? So where are they? Be patient, little Charles. Now I only have like 44 minutes, man. <laughs> All right. <laughs> what you must do, do quickly. Yes. <laughs> Uh, penny saved. What's that? Oh. A, a, uh, penny saved is a penny earned. Early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. God helps those who helps themselves. Help themselves. So. Uh, doing uh, Ben Ben David the 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 writings of Ben David. So we hear them all our lives, these short, pithy sayings that uh, are meant to help us live better. We call them Proverbs. Uh, if you heard the list of sayings we just read and wondered what they all have in common, it's this. They're not in the Bible. Uh, God, yeah. In this lesson, we're just going to keep going. In this lesson, we're going to consider the Proverbs that are in the Bible. What a wise thing for us to do here. Uh, the book of Proverbs consists, consists of exactly what the title suggests. 
wise sayings, advice, and principles. Um, some of them are connected to each other thematically. Some of them just to seem to stand on their own. Like the first seven chapters, I mean, I had it myself. In this lesson, we're going to consider what Proverbs actually are uh, and what they are not. Very important when you're going through the book of Proverbs. Um, we're going to talk about a, a method for interpreting this genre of scripture and themes that um, pervade, that are present throughout the entire book. And most important, we're going to see that the book of Proverbs, unlike the, the short quips that we just went through, point us to something far greater than simply advice for living a better life today. If you need that, go to Joel Osteen. Um, but Proverbs point us to true wisdom that is found only in Jesus Christ. So this book was written uh, by King Solomon. Uh, but really that doesn't have much bearing on the interpretation. Uh, what may have more effect on the interpretation is that many times in the first chapters, Solomon is talking to his son. It's as though he's trying to teach his son how to be a man. Uh, and whether a son is literal or rhetorical in this context uh, isn't the issue. Uh, it's the fact that he was writing these to his son to teach him how to be a man, which nowadays, you know, I got to teach my son how to shoot a gun or I have to teach my son uh, how to throw a baseball so that he can be a man. Those things are good and we should teach them to our sons. But we have a messed up idea of what it means to teach our sons to be men. It starts with Proverbs. So the Proverbs are full of the wisdom of a man who has lived life, seen much of the world, and wants to pass on to a son what he's learned. So in terms of redemptive historical context, it doesn't seem like the Psalms are really moving the plots forward. Um, there isn't much that we really see about God's plan of salvation over the course of time. But they do uh, typify the wisdom that the king needs to rule over God's people. And so they point to Christ who possesses the greatest wisdom and will in fact rule over God's people forever. That means once we understand how to interpret this genre, we can generally apply it um, directly to our lives. Uh, there's not a whole lot of acrobatic or uh, gymnastic work to do to translate them from Old Testament Israel to our lives today. Um, you know, like the Levitical food laws. And that's why one, that's one reason why Christians today still love the book of Proverbs because uh, in most instance, instances, it is easy to, to apply. Uh, now, yes. Oh, no. oh, I thought you had your hand up. All right. There are a lot, <laughs> a lot of themes uh, throughout the book of Proverbs. Um, there's the fear of the Lord, the power of the tongue, what makes a godly woman, what does it mean to truly live life, how do you get wisdom, receiving instruction, sovereignty of God, honesty, marriage, sex, family, work, economics, generosity, friendship, and so on. But above all this is the central theme of wisdom. And so two statements can serve, can serve as a theme for the entire book here. And that is wisdom is fearing the Lord, being teachable, and having skill, I got skills, uh, and godly living. And the Lord is the source, uh, the means, and the goal of wisdom. So do we want to have skill in godly living? Then we need to understand that the Lord is the source, the means, and the goal of wisdom. 
uh, and we read throughout Psalms about the fear of the Lord, uh, and that equates to living life in relation to who God really is. Um, being teachable, it, it, it's, it equates to the fact that wisdom isn't so much about what you know as it is about your humility and continuing to learn. And having skill in godly living equals that wisdom is knowledge and action. Uh, knowledge alone isn't enough. It's how do you then apply that? Wisdom is knowledge and action. Uh, knowing what to do with the knowledge you've received in order to live a more godly life. Uh, and so where does this wisdom come from? Sunday school answer, God. He is the source of wisdom. He is the creator of all things. Anything that is going to be known in his universe is not entirely understood unless it's until until it's understood in relation to who he is, uh, understood in relation to why he created it, what it tells us about him. So outside of understanding it in that way, nothing can be truly understood. He is also the means by which anyone gets wisdom. All wisdom comes from God as a gift. And by the goal of wisdom, what we mean is the ultimate value. What is the ultimate value of having wisdom, and that is to know God better. And so Proverbs can be divided into three main sections. Um, Proverbs 1 through 9, Solomon's wisdom for the young man. Um, then 10 through 29, his collection of independent Proverbs. Uh, and then Proverbs, Proverbs 30 and 31, which are non-Solomonic, <laughs> non-Solomonic Proverbs. Oh, it's been a long day. <laughs> I can't believe I just said that. Salamonic. All right. Oh, all right, moving on. So since the Proverbs don't form a single storyline or, or logical argument or narrative, uh, we're going to be looking at it a little bit different than how we normally do this. Um, we want to start with considering the genre of Proverbs, what they are and how we interpret them. And then we'll go thematically through the book as we consider various aspects of wise living that we see here. So what are the Proverbs? And, you know, most of the scriptures teach eternal truths about God, um, about God, about man, about the world. But the Proverbs are a little bit different. Um, they're still inspired, still profitable, that, but they're unique in that they aren't uh, necessarily absolute rules that govern the universe. They're, you know, they're not guarantees for this life. They're not promises. Rather, they're general principles and observations that can be drawn from the created order by those who fear the Lord. Uh, Proverb twenty six twenty seven is a great example Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. Now, does that mean that every single person who has ever dug a pit has fallen in? Yes, Seth. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you just dig pits at your house? Did you fall in? Liar, this says that whoever <laughs> digs a pit we will. Know you did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Does this mean that everyone who ever rolled a stone has been crushed by that stone? No. No. Uh, I have actually dug a pit and not fallen in. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Heresy. Heresy. I don't think I've ever rolled a stone, though. Uh, yeah, I'm bald. Heresy. Yes. Oh, hair I see. Um, rather, that was a joke by Chuck, not me. Rather, what the proverb is saying has to do with deceit. Again, it's interpreting it within its genre. Uh, digging a pit here means you have the intent of harming someone. You're digging a pit for them to fall into. Um, rolling a stone has with the intent of trying to fudge property boundaries, uh, which were marked by stones in the ancient Near East. Remember, that's why contextualization is so important. Because how many of us would think rolling a stone has to do with uh, property? I think it has to do with painting things black. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but it has to do with property boundaries. It's about deceit. Um, contextualizing. So the writer is saying that your deceit is going to come back to bite you in the end. Now, that is a good principle to abide by uh, and to, to always remember. It's not exactly what it's saying. Oh, yeah, dig a pit, fall in. No, it's you are deceitful, it will come back to bite you. Um, but it's just not true that every lie harms the liar, at least not in this life. Um, but here in this life, people do tell lies and get away with it. Um, how do I know that? Because I've lied and gotten away with it before. Uh, probably all of us have. Well, by the look on Chuck's face, not him. He's. I always get caught. Oh. <laughs> but uh, the fact that most of us only occasionally get caught. Uh, uh, it, that doesn't negate the truth of this proverb that lies do come back to haunt us, to bite us in the end. So then what's the application of the proverb? Don't try to deceive people because nine times out of ten, you're only going to harm yourself with the deceit. Unless you're Chuck, then it's ten out of ten. So uh, nonetheless, there are some proverbs that are always true because they describe an eternal truth about God and just the hardwired workings of the universe. Um, you can spot that because typically they make sweeping claims that simply can't apply sometimes and not others. In other words, if it's making a universal statement, it's, it's always true. Proverbs 16.33 is a good example. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Uh, this is a universal statement. It is affirming God's sovereignty. So we know this one is one that is always true. It's not just uh, something that is a good rule of thumb. Hey, you know that if you lie, it's going to come back to bite you. Uh, here, if he's not sovereign all the time, then he's not sovereign. Uh, the proverb says it's every decision is from the Lord. That word every is the giveaway here. It's a universal statement. So this function, this proverb is more of a, a true saying about things than a principle or just some sort of advice. Um, Psalm, proverb 17.15 says, Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. 
this is about God's delight in justice and hatred for injustice. You know, that never changes because he is always righteous. And so this proverb would never make sense if he only sometimes hated justice as a principle, as a rule of thumb. No, this is a definite, absolute truth of the universe. Uh, most of the Proverbs, though, fall into that first category where they are a principle, a, a guiding, guiding rule, a type of advice. They're generally true rather than inviolable laws of the universe. Uh, so in that sense, we need to think of the book of Proverbs as a manual for uh, fulfilling God's creation mandate uh, to us that, to exercise dominion over his earth. So for Old Testament Israel, that mandate was fulfilled especially as a nation. And so this serves even more pointedly as wisdom for God's king. Uh, again, these proverbs are generally true, but there are certain exceptions. Um, they tell us that if we do what is right, things will go well. But is that always the case? Not today and not even in the Old Testament either. Uh, you might think of the book of Job as being consumed with the exceptions to this rule. Sometimes the righteous do suffer. Uh, and so that's why I say the proverbs are generally true, but not always. And we have a whole book of wisdom literature to grapple with that exception. So how are they to be interpreted? Uh, we talked about the Psalms and we talked about how Hebrew poetry uses parallelisms where one line expands upon or amplifies the line before. Uh, and with Proverbs, they are a style of Hebrew poetry. So everything that we talked about last lesson about the parallelisms, about contrast, about emphasizing a point, that those things still apply when we're looking at uh, Proverbs. But they are a little bit different um, uh, because the parallels in Proverbs are typically contrast. Like the wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. So they're typically in contrasts. Uh, so a couple of guides, a few steps to guide our interpretation. Determine the parallelisms. In the Proverbs we just read, the proverb, not the Proverbs, it is a proverb. And the proverb we just read, what in the second line is in parallel with the wise of heart. So here it is again. The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. So what is the parallel? Wise of heart and a babbling fool. And there is also a parallel with the verb. That was the parallel of the subject. There's a parallel of the verb. Uh, the wise of heart will receive commandments, but, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. And then what's in parallel with commandments? The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. So this one's pretty easy because of all the parallel elements. Uh, they're in the same order. Uh, but this is poetry, not science. So it's not always this easy to spot these parallelisms. Uh, so sometimes we need to slow down, mull it over, uh, and allow God to open our eyes to the full meaning of a verse. So, yeah, first, determine the parallelisms. Then identify any figures of speech. Uh, earlier we saw the, the digging a pit and rolling a stone were ways of talking about deception. Uh, are there figures of speech in this one we just talked about, babbling fool? 
uh, one who talks a lot. Further, it also probably means one who talks so much that he has no time to listen. And then you take into account that in the book of Proverbs, um, when he talks about the fool, he's not only ever, it's not just a silly or dumb person. A lot of times in the book of Proverbs, fool is uh, contrasted with the righteous. So a fool also is somebody who has some moral deficiency in him. So this is a guy who is talking a lot and probably uh, with a multitude of words, sin increases, which is another proverb. Uh, so what does come to ruin again mean? Uh, most likely means trouble, tragedy. They're going to fall upon uh, the relationship in which you behave like a chattering fool, whether it's with a spouse, an employer, uh, a parent. Uh, and then one last thing we need to notice here is that this proverb has to do with superiors. It talks about accepting commands um, where it says, uh, the wise of heart will receive commandments. Uh, so it's talking about a relation to those in authority. So this proverb has little to do with how we relate to our children or students or strangers we meet. Those aren't the type of people who usually give us commands. So how are you, de how are you responding in those uh, relationships with your authorities? Are you receiving commands? Are you talking like some morally deficient fool who won't be quiet? Well, you're probably going to come to ruin. So, and then you summarize what the proverb says in your own words, uh, based on what you've found, found so far with identifying the figures of speech um, and uh, looking at the parallelisms. Then you can consider, after all of this, how do you apply this to your own life um, with this proverb? How We all have parents to whom we've got to submit to. Uh, well, some of you have parents you need to submit to. Uh, we all have parents that we need to honor and respect. Most of us, most of us have bosses. Uh, students here, you have teachers. Um, members of EWC, you have elders. Um, wife, <laughs> you have a husband. I'm going to say wives, but <laughs> uh, we all live under the authority of God. And so... This is a great proverb for in these relationships, it says we are to be quick to listen and submit. Don't argue and bicker over things. If you obey and submit, you prove yourself to be wise. But again, that doesn't mean these are absolute laws. What if someone commands you to sin? Obviously, you don't. Uh, so the real value of these steps that we just talked about is they make you slow down. They make you consider what the proverb says. Uh, slowing down like this and really meditating over a text will cause things to jump out like they haven't before. All right, I'm going to speed things up here. Um, it's also important to note that considering the original context of a proverb and even looking at various translations can be helpful for understanding a proverb. Uh, one of my favorites, uh, it's not here in your notes, but they believe it's Psalm 20 verse 1. The King James says, wine is a mocker strong drink and uh, strong, oh, strong, wine is a mocker strong drink and anyone who's deceived thereof is a fool where the today's English version, which I don't I'm not recommending that version, but today's English version says getting drunk is stupid. So I, I love how it puts it. 
Um, so various translations can be helpful for understanding Proverbs rather than anyone is deceived thereof as a fool to getting drunk is stupid. Um, but here, the example here, Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Uh, the verse has been justified, used for his justification for new mission statement or vision casting. But most English, modern English translations translate vision as revelation or prophetic vision and perish as uh, cast off restraint. So the ESV says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. And of course, we, we already know that when it says prophetic, it doesn't mean some foretelling of the future. It means a foretelling of God's holiness standards, where there is no, no one there to, have, to cast the vision of being holy, for the Lord your God is holy, the people cast off restraint. Um, so it's actually about keeping the prophetic revelation of God's word. Um, and without that, people cast off restraint. So when we're looking for, at more narrative-oriented pieces of scripture, these nuances in the English language can be less significant because there's a greater context for understanding the narrative. Uh, but when we're looking for truths and teaching uh, in one or two verses, understanding the meaning of particular words is critical. Um, there are some other comments about understanding and interpreting uh, Proverbs. Common sense is required. Yes. They're always ultimately true. They are normally true now. They employ poetic imagery. They are partial in themselves. They are sometimes obscure. And as a whole, the Proverbs are religious. So seven guidelines... Um, to understanding and interpreting uh, Proverbs. Okay, I'm going to keep going so that we can... Uh, I was going to spend some time on those, but we don't have time to spend time. So what is the framework for understanding wisdom in the Proverbs? Uh, one, uh, four basic themes here. One, contrast to wise living. One of the main characters in the book is the fool. Uh, according to the book of Proverbs, you can tell someone's a fool by what they think about discipline. Uh, how do they respond to correction? Uh, do they avoid it? Uh, they have a disregard for discipline. Uh, you could say that the overriding characteristic of a fool is that he has no self-control. Uh, the, uh, the fool in the book of Proverbs is not known simply for what he does or does not do, but about what he says. Um, a patient man has great understanding, but a quick-tempered man displays folly. So again, he's quick to spout off about whatever comes to his mind without thought uh, to the impact of his words. Uh, Proverbs seventeen twenty-eight: Even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent, and discerning if he holds his tongue. Uh, so while silence can't change the heart, the ability to hold one's tongue is the first step toward recognizing a heart that is generating foolish speech. Um, so not only by what he does, but also a fool is recognized, identified by what happens to him. His own rejection of correction, um, his hatred of wisdom. Uh, essentially, fools are atheists. They have determined in their hearts to live as if there were no God. That's why I say a fool isn't just, biblically, it isn't just a dumb person who does dumb things. They're somebody who, they're morally deficient. They are sinful. That's why Jesus says that calling somebody a fool is a serious thing. You're not, you're not just saying they're silly. 
you're pronouncing you are a sinner in danger of hellfire. Uh, so the foolish, simple man is unable to discern good from evil. Proverbs provides another contrast to wisdom through the character of the sluggard. Uh, the sluggard is pretty easy to recognize. Uh, failure to take advantage of opportunities. Uh, Derek Kidner has written that the sluggard does not commit himself to refusal, but deceives himself by the smallness of his surrender. So by inches and minutes, his opportunity slips away. Uh, we live in a fast-paced, opportunistic society, but does that mean the sluggards are absent? No. Um, they're the ones who are at the bottom of the power structures. Uh, is it not possible that those who let opportunity slip away could be some of the powerful and busy among us? Um, also, we live in a distracted age. Uh, even the sluggard has gotten up the energy to start something as basic as eating, but he doesn't finish it. Of Proverbs 16 says, The sluggard puts his hand to the bowl but does not bring it to his mouth. I'm hungry. <sighs> you know, and he leaves it there. He's something as basic as eating, he doesn't finish. Uh, so, what kind of person are you? Do you look for the easy way out? Do you finish projects you begin? Uh, things like that. Uh, but Proverbs does more than just provide contrast, it provides examples and context for how we should live if we're to live wisely in our present age. Uh, so con it gives us a context for wise living. Uh, Proverbs has a lot to say about the family from marriage to parent-child relationships, finances within all that. Um, and so all of us have some experience living uh, within one or multiple of these contexts. Now the wise and godly life, according to Proverbs, pays particular heed to the family. It understands that the biblical or the building block of family is marriage. Proverbs speaks to romance between husband and wives, to faithfulness, to describing a noble wife's character. Uh, Proverbs impresses upon our minds and hearts the lesson we must never underestimate the danger of adultery. Uh, when it speaks of adultery, it's always to the end of destruction for the adulterer. Uh, so it makes it clear that breaking our marital covenants with our spouses, as terrible as that is, points to the even greater transgression of unfaithfulness in our relationship with God. Uh, it also speaks to our relationships, um, the relationships of parents with children. After all, it is written from a father to a son. Um, it's preoccupied not with the parents' provision of the children's practical needs, but their provision for the children's spiritual needs. Now, we learn in the New Testament that, hey, if, you're not, if a, a guy says he's a believer, he's not providing for his family... He's worse than an unbeliever. But Proverbs um, devotes itself mostly to the, uh, the parents uh, providing for the children's spiritual needs, um, teaching their children. And one of the common ways that Proverbs talks about how wisdom is taught is through correction and discipline. Uh, so Proverbs exhorts parents to provide loving discipline. Uh, says in Chapter nine, Proverb 19, discipline your son, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to his death. Uh, Proverb 3.12 says that uh, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. Uh, that it, it makes this uh, inextricable link between love and discipline. It speaks to other relationships, um, like friendship. Uh, it doesn't assume that all friends we have are good friends. Uh, 
in the very beginning when he's talking to his son, he's saying, hey, son, don't go along with evildoers. Don't be go along with them for the nets that they lay or they're going to get snared in themselves. Um, do not envy the wicked men, he says. Do not desire they co- their company, he says mm-hmm. in Proverbs 24. Uh, because given the time that we spend with friends, they are going to influence us. So Proverbs speaks to these relationships uh, that we have with friends. And it speaks just as bad relation, bad friends can have an influence on us toward foolishness and evil. It, may, it, goes a, it says a lot about how good friends can influence us to wise and righteous living. Uh, that real friends are sensible. Real friends are selfless. Real friends forgive. Real fa- friends tell the truth to each other. We see this throughout Proverbs. And so it would not be too surprising if a real re- friendship eludes people who elude God. Because real friendship begins in our relationship with God. Uh, it goes on to talk about communication of wise living. That is another one of the themes. Uh, Proverbs tells us much about how we're to communicate wisely and what we say and how we say things and in how we listen. Uh, some people pride themselves on telling the truth, but scripture doesn't tell us, it doesn't say tell the truth. It says speak the truth in love. So it's not just in what we say, it's in how we say things and how we listen. Proverbs 14.8 says, The wisdom of the prudent is to give thought to their ways. In other words, think this through. Think how you're doing things. Not just that you're doing them. Think how. Um, He who guards his lips guards his life. But he who speaks rashly will come to ruin. Well, I just speak what's on my mind. Oh, so you're speaking rashly. He who guards his lips guards his life. A man of knowledge uses words with restraint. And a man of understanding is even tempered again oh i just i just tell it like it is i speak my mind man read proverbs i'm speaking my mind when i tell you that uh and the use of our words proverbs goes beyond things like gossip slander or lying and spend significant time addressing hasty words um you know how do you do in the the category of hasty words Are you a quick responder? Are you quick to offer guidance, uh, maybe even biblical guidance and counsel? Uh, Proverbs warns us that a wise person won't answer until he's gathered sufficient information, until he's gained an appropriate understanding of the situation and purpose. In other words, a wise person is not like the media. All right, moving on. (laughs) A word aptly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. Proverbs 25 Uh, if you struggle to use your words in a wise manner, if you think you already do use your words in a wise manner, do a study on the verses and Proverbs about our words. Ask a friend or your spouse about how you're doing in relation to those verses. Then according to Proverbs, even more important than the words we speak are the words we hear. Wisdom is found through listening to the words of others. Um, The idea of hearing in the Bible doesn't only mean listening. It means listening and following up with the right action. A book of James. Do not be a hearer of the word only who deceive themselves, but be a doer. Not, so that's the idea. If you're truly hearing the word of God, that means you will be following up with the right action. Uh, listen to and then heeding wise words is the beginning and essence of wisdom. Uh, do you feel like you have a lot to teach but little to learn? Well, you might want to consider whether the learning attitude of the wise is exemplified in your life. Uh, 
And are there individuals that you refuse to learn from? Uh, a wise man is going to see every relationship as an opportunity for learning and growing in wisdom. Then the outcome of wisdom is the fourth theme there. And Proverbs teaches us much about living wisely in this present world, but it also teaches us more importantly about what's to come. It tells us that we're not static or neutral creatures. Uh, every day we're uh, walking toward life or walking toward death. Proverbs 19.16 says, He who obeys instruction guards his life, but he who is contemptuous, contemptuous of his uh, ways will die. So the matter of Proverbs are matters of life and death. We will be held accountable to God. God will summon each of us to a final accounting. Uh, and sometimes people think that all this practical wisdom in Proverbs means it's a book of morality, that it teaches us to save ourselves by following its requirements, but it doesn't. Proverbs makes it very clear that we are accountable to God for our sin, that God will judge us for our wrong actions, and that we must confess our sins if we're to receive mercy. Uh, Proverbs 16.6 6 says, Through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. So it's not just a bunch of Ben Franklin quotes or Confucius sayings. Um, it absolutely makes it clear, again, that we are accountable to God for our sin, that he's going to judge us for our wrong actions, and we must confess our sins to receive mercy. So where is Jesus? Where is gospel in all of, the gospel in all of this? Well, Christ was the very embodiment of wisdom. Matthew 12 tells us this. Uh, it said that he is greater than Solomon in all his wisdom. In other words, no one understood the world like Jesus did. Remember, he is the creator. Colossians tells us that through him, all things were created. Now, the wisest thing any one of us can do is repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ. Um, Paul glories in the wisdom of the gospel. Uh, no matter how, was, how wise one might be uh, in earthly things, without the gospel, their wisdom is insufficient. So why Confucius may have some good things to say, but in the end, Confucius is insufficient to know God. Now, there isn't a proverb we can point to that is going to tell us about Christ's work on the cross. Um, but we also know that the wisdom described in Proverbs isn't possible on our own. Uh, none of us have lived the Proverbs perfectly. In other words, none of us have lived um, displaying perfect wisdom. First uh, Corinthians 1 verses 18 through 24, um, Paul is telling us about the perceived foolishness and true wisdom that Proverbs foreshadows. He says, For the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the, gen the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, 
Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So even if there isn't anything that explicitly speaks of the gospel, we see that still in Proverbs, it is still pointing us to Christ who is the embodiment of wisdom. It still is pointing us to the gospel, which is the speaking forth of the greatest wisdom there is, repent and trust in Christ. And so the Proverbs are incredibly rich. They are full of wisdom. They're something to be read through slowly, to be read uh, contemplatively, to be meditated on. And by all means, we are to strive by the grace of God to apply them, to understand the fear of the Lord, to find the knowledge of God. Uh, That's why if, if you only ever do one book inductively, Proverbs is an incredible book to do inductively. Um, when I open my Bible I, to Proverbs, it's like a counseling manual. In one glance, I can see, okay, this section is talking about finances. Oh, this section is talking about speech. Oh, that section is talking about discipline. Oh, that section is talking about fear of the Lord. Um, if you ever just decide to experiment with inductive studying, man, Proverbs is an awesome book to do it with. So um, we spend a lot of time doing what we love. Uh, We spend our energy pursuing the things that we like. Well, listen to this. Proverb 19, 8. He who gets wisdom loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will find good. So study, meditate on the Proverbs. Um, one good way to do it is read the proverb that corresponds with the date. Um, I used to do this. I would pray through, I'd start with the Psalm of the day, pray through every 30th Psalm and then go to the proverb for the day and pray through that. Um, you go through the Psalms in a month, you go through the book of Proverbs in a month. Maybe we can start doing that on men's prayer meeting as well. Uh, if we have time. But the structure of the book allows you to jump in whatever the date is, even if you've missed a few days, because it's not a narrative. There's not a common string or thread throughout it. And then parents, teach your kids the Proverbs. Uh, There are some great books out there. Sally Michaels with uh, Truth 78, Children Desiring God, has a great book out there on Proverbs. And then as you teach them Proverbs, teach them that Jesus is the true wisdom of God. All right. I know we kind of flew through that. Um, I didn't give much time for questions or comments, but we got a few minutes. If there are any questions, comments, thoughts. All right. Uh, So in the first part of this, I think John handed out the uh, essay instructions for Old Testament 1. Is that correct? Everybody got that? Yeah. Okay, uh, so it's uh, an overview of covenant throughout the scripture. 